Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Customs of the World, using cultural intelligence to adapt wherever you are. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 5th, 2014, the In the Cloud, No One Knows You're a Dog edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate. On this week's show, the world is a mess, even more of a mess than it was last week. We will try to resolve the crisis in Ukraine, and if we have five minutes to spare, we will develop the ISIS strategy that uh, Obama is looking for, the droids he's been looking for. Then fall is here, which means that the 2014 campaign is now officially in full swing John Dickerson has has uh, shed his winter coat, or he's grown his winter coat in excitement out of this. Uh, we are going to handicap the 2014 election. We'll talk about where things stand. Then naked pictures of celebrity, although not, not apparently of any of us, stolen from the cloud, uploaded to the internet. Do we need new laws to stop this, or should we just stop fretting about it? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and we're going to have a Slate Plus bonus segment for Slate Plus subscribers you will get it we're going to talk about residency politicians and residency does it matter where politicians live that means you mary landrew if you want to sign up for slate plus where you will get these bonus segments and hundreds and hundreds of other goodies for a tiny modest price please go to slate.com slash gabfest plus or email me directly david.plots at slate.com john dickerson is to my right hello john hello david your slate's chief political correspondent still (laughs) <laughs> and well, but, no, and, and a, forever it's shall be. <laughs> it's an important adverb on this day because Emily Bazelon gave us all a bit of a heart attack this week, notably GabFest listeners, with with news that Emily Bazelon, though still a senior editor at Slate, is about to not be a senior editor at Slate. What are you about to be, Emily? I'm about to be a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, but I am going to continue to do the GabFest. So there is no reason for anyone to have a heart attack over that, right? Yes, there's now, no reason. Now, the, the GabFest listeners may be unfamiliar with this thing called the New York Times, since it never gets mentioned much on the yeah. GabFest. So. It, I think it's related it? to This American Life. Right, exactly. I think well, it's a sub- the and may or may not be, yes, may or may not also be on the nightstand with The New Yorker. So the editor of The New York Times Magazine, I was talking to him yesterday, Emily, and he was asking what your nickname was. So oh, I, did you say? I told him. I told him. What is his, her nickname? Old Crab Apple. That one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, no, he was asking oh. if it was Baz. No, you know what my nickname is. It's from John Swansburg. What is it? It's Ebaz. Yeah, it's Ebaz. Much to be preferred to Spazalon <laughs> and Bezeltron and even Babble On. I, I, like, I, I, did say, I did say. I did also say that you were Spazzy Bazzy. To him. No, no. I feel please. like I want I want Bazzy because it feels like it's somebody out of a John Cheever novel. Yeah. John calls you Bazzy, you know that. But I call her Bazzy when in you're that not around. Yeah, that way. that's so cute. My dad's best friend calls him Bazzy, but nobody's ever called me Bazzy. I like that. That's but lovely. I feel like Bazzy must also be accompanied by a tray of fresh gin and tonics. Like it's just <laughs> so waspy that that. Immediately, I have that synesthesia or whatever. When that word is said, immediately I imagine a, 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 a tray. So you've cold... succeeded in turning me into a wasp. I've yes, been exactly. My whole life. Well, actually, not since this conversion. <laughs> uh, since I've undergone a conversion on this show since its inception, I thought I would try and throw the love the other way. That sounds good. I think I call you the Baz. If I'm the Baz, the Baz, E Baz. Yeah, you've ba- done that. Good, That's Baz, fine too. The good, the Baz, and the ugly would make a. <laughs> that, that's what we call the show. Yeah. yeah. 
And Guess thanks. which one I am. <laughs> All right. Uh, so okay, just a couple more. <laughs> we will do a show in a minute. But there were quick announcements. Someday. This is just the relief. This is the, the flop sweat relief of Emily not leaving the Gabfest. It's just we're slightly giddy. So our San Francisco show on October 5th, the Super Fest with the uh, Slate Culture Fest. It's sold out already. It's sold out. It's sold out in Rolling Stones time. It's sold out in a day. So we don't have tickets left for that, I'm afraid. But if you're a Culture Fest fan and who isn't and you're on the West Coast and who isn't, in Los Angeles on October 8th, there, there's going to be a, a live Culture Fest just a few days after the Superfest. You can travel from San Francisco down to L.A. and see it. Um, there's still tickets available for that. That is at uh, slate.com slash L.A. Culture Fest, October 8th. They're going to have special guests. It'll be great. Is there laser sound music for Superfest? So, like, later on when you say Superfest on the show, it'll go... I'm sure our producer... Michael, I, like, can take I, care I, of I that. think that should be that should exist. Okay. As we tape on Thursday, a ceasefire in the Ukraine war seems possible, maybe even likely. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Poroshenko may have worked out a reprieve in a war that has now killed more than two thousand people, set the world on edge. Russian-backed separatists and Russian troops have been nibbling up territory in eastern Ukraine, perhaps trying to make a land bridge to Crimea, perhaps just trying to establish uh, facts on the ground to create a separate, perhaps a separate country, perhaps a, a splitter republic that would be allied with Russia. Ukraine's military appears overmatched and is not getting a lot of support from the West, except rhetorically. So when the world explodes, our first call is to Will Dobson, Slate's foreign editor, the author of the brilliant book, The Dictator's Learning Curve, which is in part about Vladimir Putin. He joins us in D.C. Hello, Will. Hi, David. So is there about to be a ceasefire? Yeah, yes, there's about to be a ceasefire. How long will this last? I wouldn't bet that it's going to last very long. How much control does Putin really have over the separatists? Reporters who are there are saying they haven't seen any ceasing of firing. And if it does have any chance of succeeding, if there was any reason to look at it and say, you know, this might actually work, is when you look at the seven points that Putin is asking for, they essentially amount to, I have a good idea. Why don't you surrender? Um, if you surrender, then perhaps we'll have a ceasefire because that's essentially what he's asked for, it, for it, control of the country. It's like bipartisanship and most people's definition in Washington is actually means just surrender to all of my demands and that'll be bipartisan. But, I mean, it's, it's a fair question to ask whether or not even that will be enough. I mean, you have to look at sort of the broader context of what he's been saying. I mean, just last Friday, there was a, something that didn't get a lot of comment, but he stopped by the summer camp that the Kremlin runs for, for Putin youth. And uh, he, yeah. Do they call them Putin youth? Well, it's, yeah, they have something like that, in fact, yes. And he stopped there, and it's for the real ultra-nationalist, you know, Putin uh, supporters. A lot of these kids are from the countryside, and they take them there for the summer to indoctrinate them in Putinism. And he he had this sort of fake Q&A with a young woman there where he brought up the issue of Kazakhstan and and essentially said, you know, they've really never had statehood. And and the questioner said, you know, we, we all anticipate that the Ukrainian scenario could play out there too, which he didn't deny. So, you know, the possibility that we're nearing the end of this, this moment, it's anybody, only Putin knows. Wow. Wow, that is crazy. Why, why is it that Ukraine – Ukraine is a nation. It has a government. It has an army. Fact, yes. Why can't, <laughs> you know, it has people who are soldiers who are fighting. Why can't a, a national army – defeat a bunch of a motley crew because they're Russian soldiers I mean they were defeating them and that's what's really yes. crucial here what's crucial here is that at first I mean what, what was Putin's strategy initially was to use his proxies which were these separatists he ginned up it's actually sort of the military equivalent of what was his political strategy at first which was Yanukovych the, the puppet de- dictator that was thrown out he was hoping that Yanukovych would keep a hold on Ukraine when he failed to do that and the Euromaidan exploded or, you know late last year and early this year he then had to re- resort to this strategy, which was first using these proxies. Well, the Ukrainian uh, military was able to route them. And as it became apparent to Putin in, in recent days that, in fact, they were going to face military defeat, then he begins to call on his own Russian troops, which mysteriously start showing up in the country, even though they claim that they just happen to, you know, lose their map. So with that, you know, you, you now see the tide has turned and he's able to force surrender terms on Kiev. 
So you just said that he's resorted to the strategy, and I completely understand it wouldn't be his first choice. But it feels to me like Putin has the upper hand right now because NATO, Europe, and the United States are so reluctant to really take him on. Am I being too cowed? No, that's exactly right. And he definitely has the upper hand because the fundamental dynamic that has always been true for the last seven months and remains true today is that Putin wants, the, wants Ukraine more than the United States wants to defend it. And that hasn't changed. And so, you know, it's I, I think it'd be very disorienting right now to be a Ukrainian and to listen to President Obama speak, because there are days when you think that he's got your back. And then there are other days when he says, well, I don't really see how anything there has changed at all. I mean, it's he's making it clear that rhetorically we will fight Putin until the last syllable, but we're not going to actually <laughs> lift a finger to do anything else. Well, can that lead us to a conversation about NATO? Because the president is meeting with NATO leaders and trying to, A, come up with a response to what's happening in Ukraine, but then also the president, again, rhetorically, but then also with some talk about a NATO rapid reaction force that would protect countries, Ukraine not in NATO, but would protect countries that are quite close to Ukraine. It seemed like they were saying, OK, Ukraine, Ukraine's gone, but Ukraine and no more. And when the president said, you know, we will defend you, Estonia, Latvia, all the Balkans. Um, and Baltics. Baltics, sorry. Yeah. Balkans, no, yeah. different Balkans war. Too. Yeah. Balkans, like them too. Yeah, but they're, they're different war. Different, they're elsewhere, though. Different, yeah, different century. But, like, is there a collective response and uh, from NATO that's called for here? Or is it just kind of saying this and no further. I mean, if you were to try to provide that sort of collective response under the terms of NATO, then you would have to declare a war on Russia immediately because immediately Russia, I mean, the collective defense, Article 5 promise of NATO membership is an attack on one is an attack on all. And so that's obviously not, an, no, no one's talking about doing that. There are some people who are calling for arms uh, going to the Ukrainians. There is virtually no will to try to do anything meaningful to try to stop Putin. But, is, but, but I guess my question is, right, no will to do anything to stop him now, but they do seem to be trying to draw, yes. for, without using the term, a red line for anything more he would do. Right. And, and, and is that plausible? Is talk of a rapid reaction force, which would presumably keep him from doing going any further? I mean, the rapid reaction force, it's 4,000 soldiers. I mean, I, I don't think that that is a particularly intimidating thing. Um, but I think, yeah, it's absolutely the case that they are trying to say, you know, this can't go any further. It certainly can't go into a NATO member state. And we mean Article 5 still means what it always meant. And we stand by that. So that's that's definitely if you're Ukra if you're Ukrainian, you hear these words and you realize, oh, OK, will they just close the, the line on the other side? And we're, Wait, I mean, it seems to me like this is the minimum line NATO could draw. Like, of course, of course we can't yeah. have Russia march into Poland and Latvia and exactly. Estonia. Exactly. Well, but isn't there a case to be made? In fact, I read it being made, and and maybe because I'm just a some kind of radical peacenik, I was slightly persuaded by it that we never should have been so flirty with Ukraine and Georgia to begin with. That these are this is a country that was strongly in Russia's sphere of influence. That there was no point and no great point in provoking. The, it's, it was never going to be, you know, one of the tremendous po economic powers of the world or great democracies of the world, and that it was, we just were poking at Putin by by being so flirtatious with them, by supporting populist democratic movements against Putin selected leaders. Yeah, I mean, and who doesn't that, like that, to poke a little Putin? <laughs> frankly? I mean, the, so this is the the NATO did it, you know, argument, or the West the West has it coming because of the way we've acted in our post Cold War era, um, it's moving the boundaries of NATO and, and the European Union, for that matter. I, there are two big problems with this argument. One is that it denies any agency whatsoever to the Ukrainian people and others who've wanted to be members. I mean, the Orange Revolution in two thousand four and the Euromaidan. In 2013-2014 was genuine. Uh, it was a real public uprising. Uh, it wasn't a Western plot. Uh, the only people who think that it was a Western plot out to get to Moscow are people like, like Vladimir Putin, who is at root an unreconstructed unre KGB agent who does not believe, he does not actually understand that there can be mass movements. He sees a puppeteer behind anything like this. He sees these as people as being engineered to do this. And so he very much believes that it was a plot, you know, in one, one instance by Hillary Clinton or, or, you know, the CIA or others to do this. Well, and this is an attack. Well, you can believe it's a legitimate democratic movement without also believing that the, that it needs to be supported by the West or that we, we that need to make need aggressive 
out. Tr- tr- well, or the, even make aggressive moves toward not, not aggressive is the wrong word. Even make significant moves towards saying, "Please come join us here in the West and and turn away right. from I, from the barbarians to your to your right." I mean, I think you know the Ukrainian. You know, a majority of Ukrainian people wanted to join the European Union. Whether the European Union wants to let them in or not is something else. I mean, they. They certainly did not move quickly to let them into the European. They're putting Ukraine through the paces for a long time, you know, and it's at the point in which his own puppet fails in Yanukovych and he believes that they might go to the European Union that Putin acts. And then there's a second element to it. The second problem with this theory is that it also denies any connection between what Putin is doing in his near abroad, as he calls it, and his own domestic politics. And the other reality is that it's really hard for 14 years to maintain the democratic legitimacy of an authoritarian state, which is what he's basically tasked to doing. And so it's, that's why it's not uncommon at this point in the life cycle of authoritarian states to see them begin to create nationalist causes by creating the pretext for war and distracting people from their own daily lives, which is very much what he's doing. I mean, he's presiding over an aging, economically stagnant energy power in which every day the country best and brightest leave because they don't want to live through the next phase of Putinism. It's useful at a time like that to try and engage in adventures like he's engaging in this year. So, Will, at the end of the day, does Ukraine split into pieces? And is that a terrible outcome? Or is this a country that there's enough division that that actually could make some sense? I think the best outcome for Ukraine is one in which it has a modicum of independence uh, while remaining an unaligned power. It has to be a buffer state. It's going to have to remain that. And in its best case scenario, it is able to run its affairs with a pretty strong check on its development by Moscow. But its whole affairs, other than Crimea, it remains one territory. Right. That, and, that, I mean, and that at this point may be impossible. I mean, I think that like whether or not – we, and again, we don't know. I mean, to the degree to which he really wants to create this new Russia or create an independent state, that's possible. I mean, that's absolutely – and that's something that when we've talked about this before months ago, you know, here on the GabFest, you know, that was not in the cards. And that's right. why – that's why it's so utterly important that NATO starts to try and draw these lines and show a bolster response so that we don't see more. Slippage. So what do we think the precedent is here for China? So does this now mean that, that China can legitimately think countries with significant Chinese populations, countries that are – it's near abroad – are subject to the same sway from China that these countries near Russia are subject to. In fact, even more so because China is a rising power as opposed to a falling power. And is, should, we, should we fret about that or should that be okay? I don't think there's any question that Beijing is cheering Putin on. I mean, they love this. This is an incredible test case in looking at, you know, basically because what Putin is doing is he's testing Western resolve. And so far, he hasn't come up against anything that seems solid. I mean, if you think about the contrast between right now and the Cold War, in the Cold Cold War, when we had conflicts with the Soviet Union, we had prescribed rules to sort of run our engagement so that you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how careful both sides were to make sure this is what I'm saying. This is what you're saying. This is what I heard you to say. And Putin's strategy is the exact opposite of having people follow clear rules of the game. He's he's trying to do this through obfuscation, through trying to change the rules ultimately and rewrite the international uh, landscape. So from the point of view of China, I don't think they view this and necessarily the terms of oh, where do we have ethnic populations, that's not really where their um, land claims ever have been. Their land claims are much more historically based and strategic. And so I think that they find this useful to the degree that they want to understand and see how the West and the United States in particular responds. And right now, I think they probably feel pretty good. So all this seems so deflating to me for President Obama, who has been trying to kind of have this relatively isolationist course in which he acknowledges the limitations of American power without letting chaos erupt. And it feels like the dastardly Putin is calling his bluff and making him and the United States seem very weak. Am I overreading that? No, I don't think you're overreading that at all. I mean, uh, President Obama is acting like someone who wants to pretend like nothing really significant is going on right now. And it's becoming increasingly impossible for him to do that. Do you think Syria matters in Putin's calculations when the president, when President Obama, because as you pointed out, I mean, obviously, they always say in foreign policy arguments and discussions, words matter. So the drawing the red line and then not having a red line, did that embolden 
I, I think it absolutely does because I think Putin is the kind of he he looks at his opponents in very sort of like what's the metal that you're made of sort of ways. I mean that's what all his advisors around him say that he this is actually kind of the way that he views the world. And I think he looks at instances like that and says this guy's a pushover. And I think he's pushing. I, I you know it's not exactly you know the best theory out of IR, but you know at the end of the day I think it does really matter to the guy. Do, when you guys look at so you have Ebola uh, not under control in West Africa, Syria and Syria and civil war, ISIS in a different related civil war, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Do you get the sense that these are bubbles of instability in a world that is otherwise actually quite peaceful and fairly prosperous and democratic or that in fact there is a there's a rise in instability and conflict right now? Because I'm not, I, I can't tell. I can't tell if this is these are the exceptions or these are signals to a growing, increasingly unstable world. I mean, in my in my view, I think that we are. There's so many ways in which we've entered a period of of real instability. You know, let's like cut out of the equation the authoritarian bad guys of the world. Let's forget the North Koreas and and just look at the democracies themselves and look at the incredible rise and uptick in protests within democracies. I mean, if, you know, if we, right before we were talking about the World Cup in Brazil, what were we talking about? Massive, huge, unprecedented demonstrations in what is considered a generally flourishing democracy. You think about Turkey and the protests against Erdogan, who's now cemented his control. I mean, the the rise in protests within democratic societies is of an another order that we haven't seen, not since the late 1800s. So, I, yes, I think that we have entered a period of of great instability and something that I don't want to call it right away permanent chaos, but it sure looks like it sometimes. Back to President Obama, the promise of his candidacy and of and of the Nobel Peace Prize he was given was that he would have a special skill in the post Bush era to knit together coalitions to respond to crises, whether they're from Russia or from ISIS, ISIL or whatever you want to call it, with a special talent that he could be an owl, neither a hawk nor a dove, but a smart, a person who understood power and used it smartly and was prudent about it. Is his approach to either this or the rise of ISIS, are the critics wrong? Are they just baying for some kind of action for action's sake? And he actually is trying to do the right thing, build coalitions, make this look like it's not just a U.S. response, but he's being thwarted by the Europeans. I mean, is there something is there some case that could be made for his approach here? Well, I would say that if your if your argument is that I have a natural ability to create coalitions and you cannot create coalitions in this environment, then there was never going to be a world that was going to exist that you could create coalitions in. I mean, this is the most fertile ground to ever create a coalition that a modern day American president has had really since the first Gulf War. And that's exactly what's needed right now. If you can't create a coalition that's almost organically forming against ISIS and you can't solidify that, I don't I mean, then what what divisive force in the world? Are you able to persuade people to unite with you around? I mean, we have essentially a, almost a de facto coalition that's formed between Iran, Syria, United States, Gulf states, Europe against ISIS. I mean, ISIS has shown it's, you know, it has a unique ability to get everyone to hate it. So you would think that would be one that you should just sort of add water and get. That's really, I think, the test this week for President Obama is this is like NATO summits are the most boring thing in the history of the world since essentially 1991 on. Like if you get the NATO summit assignment, you know you're not going anywhere. And it matters now. It matters in a way that this thing is coming right out of retirement. And we'll see like, just how NATO responds to his message there um, this week. Will Dobson, thank you as ever for your your wisdom. But you're always so gloomy. You've never come. <laughs> well, you've, you've never, never invited come. me. Hey, Will, there's some good news this week. Why don't you come on the Gab Fest? You've never, ever said that. Your message is all. What often- I like is how we're entering an era of instability as if we were ever in one of stability. I always miss the stable, peaceful moments. And then oh, afterward, we, we kind of. Oh, that was like the, the 90s. Yeah, the 90s. Even so. large stretches of the cold. It feels like Although- there's so much to worry about. So, but then the question is whether during periods of what appear like stability, the forces of instability are just brewing, and we should be, should have been aware of them at the time. That's like right. that's that's one of those everything everything <laughs> is everything else. Yeah, yeah right now. Yeah, well, <laughs> have have very slaty of you. Will, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. The Gabfest is brought to you this week by Stamps.com. Making trips to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You just don't need to do it anymore, thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient, driving there, finding parking, waiting in line. 
But what you probably didn't know is that you're paying more for postage than you have to. Stamps.com is a better way. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right from your computer and printer, than just hand it to your mail carrier. With Stamps.com, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office on first-class priority mail, international mail, and more. So never go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST and get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale, which people have used to weigh babies historically, as well as posted, as well as mail, and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Labor Day is over which means we're just two months from the 2014 elections and the real campaign has begun. The dynamics in the election don't appear to have changed very much. The data heads and the pundits seem to agree that the GOP will likely retake the Senate, winning the six seats they need to get the Senate and gain a few House seats, but that there are not really signs of a gigantic GOP tidal wave. The electorate is irritable and frustrated, but they're not histrionic and annoyed. There's, there doesn't seem to be... The the kind of movement, the sweep that there have been in earlier elections. Three of the Senate seats that Democrats need to hold are gone. Uh, West Virginia, Montana, and South Dakota? North Dakota? South Dakota. South Dakota. Democrats are essentially have given up on. So Republicans would need to win three other seats. There are seats on the line in Louisiana, Arkansas, Alaska, North Carolina. Am uh, I missing any? Iowa, Michigan, New Hampshire, Colorado. Uh, Colorado. Louisiana, did you say? Yeah, I said Louisiana. Um, there are eight of them. So, John Dickerson, you have died and gone to heaven. This is the time when John Dickerson flourishes. He grows an extra three or four inches. Why are there no signs of a GOP wave? I mean, the president is as unpopular as he's ever been. And admittedly, the GOP, the GOP in Congress is pretty unpopular. But the president's very unpopular. The Democratic Party has not seemed to have done a whole lot. The world is not great. The electorate is definitely going to be GOP leaning. Why, why is it – don't they have a sense in the Republican Party that they can take all these – seats up for grabs. Part of it is the candidates. Part of it's the power of incumbency in some of these races. Part of it is that still could happen. The, the wave could still break. The fact that three seats are gone, I was going over my notes the other day and, and talk, looking at a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with somebody who's involved in all these races, and they kept talking about the Romney Four. I was like, what are the Romney Four? There are seven states that Romney won in 2012 where there are incumbent Democrats. I'm like, Wait, he's not even – he's not including the three in his count. I mean, so Democrats have written those states off. That's how far gone they, they are. So Republicans have to get as few as three states out of these eight ones that are taking place on Democratic turf. And just to remind, there are two states then the Democrats could steal a seat, a seat from Republicans. Georgia, which is an interesting race because you've got two neophytes uh, running in that race. People have never run for office, I mean, or have never held office before. And then you've got Kentucky, of course, which is Mitch McConnell, which raises the amusing uh, possibility that Mitch McConnell has worked his whole life to be majority leader of the Senate. His party could give him the opportunity to do that, and then he could lose his race and, and fail to get that. So the reason that they haven't swept is that Democrats have learned how to run races. Candidates matter, and Republican brand is in trouble. Democrats know how to run races. They've got a lot of money, outside money. Labor Day uh, is the traditional start of the fall campaign. But in some of these states, the campaign's been running for a year because ads have been on the air constantly. And the Democrats and Republicans have been working their ground game. And to just talk about the Democratic team at the Senatorial Committee and how good they are, in 2010, there were 10 toss-up races, so races that could have gone either way. Democrats won eight of them. In 12, there were seven toss-up races. Democrats won five of them. They're really good at running good local campaigns against bad, bad national numbers, bad landscape, bad everything. So that all combines to why this hasn't been a swamping wave yet, but it's still looking good for the Republicans for taking back the Senate. So, Emily, does, when you look out there, do there seem to be any actual issues that, that matter in this race that you can see the campaign turning on this or that genuine issue or, or, or is there none of that? Whoa, it's so such a good question. I feel like there should be an obvious answer to it. I mean, obviously, the parties 
ideas about how to deal with people's economic plight and inequality and, you know, the big issues of taxes and spending are divided the way they've always been. And yet that does feel like it's sort of receded for right now. We haven't had like some huge budget crisis or debt ceiling threatened shutdown or anything else that feels super dramatic for a while. And I can't think of anything else that feels like it's looming really large over this election, in part because of our previous conversation that, you know, for once, foreign affairs and the president's challenges dealing with issues abroad seem so paramount. Right. And Obamacare has not emerged. I think a lot of us expected, oh, this is going to be fought around Obamacare. And it actually doesn't appear to be much of an issue. I'm sure it's mobilizing people on the right, but it's not definitely not the topic of discussion the way maybe many of us may have thought it would be a year ago. What you end up having is, is campaigns in parallel. So both sides, because it's a midterm uh, election and we're talking about an electorate that is likely to be perhaps the smallest turnout ever in a midterm election, the strategy here is to basically speak just to your bases. So there is not a public conversation, though at times the conversation is about national issues. It's Republicans talking about Obamacare and trying to tie the Democratic candidate to the president or to that health care bill. And then the Democrats don't respond or if they have if they do and they have to in a debate, they do in some very fast way that they can then pivot quickly to what they want to talk about, which is issues that can turn out basically women voters, but the Democratic coalition, single women, minorities and uh, and millennials. So they will talk about contraception as a as a one of these strategists said, you know, if the Senate could vote on Hobby Lobby contraception legislation every day, that would be great for us because this is an issue that goes right to single women voters. They talk about the minimum wage, which is an important issue, but it's again, it's not engaging in that debate about the president or health care or anything like that. But why is that important? Because two thirds of the people who get who are on the minimum wage are women and they're trying to turn out women. So each side is kind of doing their thing. And we saw this in the North Carolina uh, debate this week and also in just the advertisements in North Carolina. So Kay Hagan, the Democrat, is running four ads about Tom Tillis, who's the Speaker of the House, about how they've cut education in North Carolina. So attacking the opponent, keeping the issue local, not talking about national issues. The Chamber of Commerce, on behalf of Tillis, is running an ad about Hagan tying her to the president and Obamacare. And right there was just a microcosm of what's happening in basically every other competitive race. The two that are remarkable to me are the idea that in Arkansas and Louisiana, the Democratic senators could conceivably hold their seats. It is Louisiana maybe I'm less surprised by. But Arkansas, you think of as being in the post-Clinton era, just a completely red state. And there's a and yet strong this is where it's young supposed to all be about running. the ground game, right? Isn't Arkansas like ground zero for using all the great data crunching tools that President Obama's campaign supposedly came up with in the last election? The data crunching tools are being used in about 10 races. So there's a $60 million effort with um, – and so Arkansas is one of them. But Arkansas, Louisiana, North Carolina, Colorado, Iowa, they're trying in all of those races to do something that's quite difficult, which they've had a hard time doing before, which is that the Republican coalition of older, whiter voters tends to turn out more in these midterm elections. The Democratic coalition doesn't. And what they're trying to do is not only turn out drop-off voters, people who vote in presidential years but not midterm election years, but also go find people who share interests on some of these issues. Again, going back to contraception, minimum wage, specific issues. You know, Did you have a pre-existing condition? Or if you're an African-American, are you angry about some of these voting rights cases? And getting people who have never voted before and giving them a reason to get energized enough to go and vote. That is what President Obama did in 12. It's been hard to do in these midterm elections, and that's the big gamble. If the Democrats succeed in keeping the Senate or in doing better than people expect, it will almost entirely be because they kept the races local and they were able to gin up this turnout machine in in these competitive races. One part of this race, every two years we have this conversation, and every two years it gets worse and worse, about the non-competitiveness of the House of Representatives. Here we have a country which is quite divided, where there are strong disagreements about politics, and yet we have a House of Representatives where there are basically no contested races, maybe 30 30 or so contested races out of 435, so that more than 90 percent of the seats, there is no chance that the incumbent can lose. It's a national disgrace. It's a national disgrace that obviously the Republican Party, which has the majority, has no great interest in changing. The Democratic Party, which does not have the majority, has more of interest in changing. But do you guys think it is tenable to continue with a democracy where the major representative body 
people don't have any meaningful votes. It's so hard to imagine it turning around because even if you imagine a world in which the rules around redistricting change, you still have the big sort going on and the fact that people are moving away from people who don't agree with them politically and you have these like-minded communities. And that part of it feels to me like we're only seeing more of that when you look at the trends. I mean, you can see blue staters moving into red states. The New York Times had some coverage of that last week, and then there was a kind of interesting conversation about why that's happening. But even when that happens, they move into enclaves that are relatively liberal, and they're still probably going to be in districts with safe seats. So I just, I mean, how do you imagine that the country turns around that dynamic? The structural, so what we're talking about basically is that elections, which are supposed to refresh the conversation, we've already talked about how the conversation is happening in parallel and therefore is not being refreshed. And no, there's no release from elections. This was true of the presidential campaign, too. There was supposedly a fight about health care, but there wasn't really. And then we have this notion that elections are supposed to be a battle of ideas. Somebody wins, somebody loses. And then there's a honeymoon period where the defeated team says, OK, we were defeated on the battle of ideas. So now we've got to acquiesce, at least in some measure, to the views of the winning team. And you saw John Boehner say that for 10 seconds about health care. After the election, he said, well, yeah, it's the law of the land now. They then there ended up being a government shutdown over health care. In other words, he was beaten back by his forces to say, no, we're not. The election didn't change anything. Well, now that's really the case with the House, as we talked about it, but also the Senate. And here are some some fun. What's happened with the Senate is that basically split ticket voting has disappeared over the last several elections. And the benefit in the old days of split ticket voting is you had a red state with a bunch of Democratic senators or a blue state with a bunch of Republican senators. And so the structural inclination for those was to stay in your job. You needed to kind of go across the aisle because you needed to show your constituents, yes, you're Democrats, you were still a good Democrat, but also you supported some Republican-leaning ideas. So I'm going to throw some numbers at you about how things have changed. So what's happened is the Senate races have become a proxy for people's national views about the president. So in 2006, in the midterm elections, Republicans won six of 10 Senate races where the exit polls showed George Bush's approval rating 46 or above. So in red states, they did pretty well. In blue states where his approval rating was below 46, they the Republicans lost 19 of 20 states. So then in 2010, Democrats won Senate races in nine of the 10 states in which President Obama's approval rating was 48 or above, and they lost 13 of 15 states that were where the approval rating was lower. Okay, so what does this mean? When Nixon and Reagan were president during their two terms, the states they won in the presidential elections, half of those states had Republican senators, okay? So then basically from through Bill Clinton and George Bush, more and more you had states voting for Senate as they voted for president. So now under Obama, Democrats hold 83% of the Senate seats in the states he won. The Senate basically now structurally, there's no incentive to reach across the aisle. And just finally to finish this rant, in 2016, the map will look as good for Democrats as it looks for Republicans now. And so there will be no inclination for Democrats to do anything other than to basically not play along. Let's say the Republicans win the majority. Democrats no, not play along and then run in states like Florida and Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin and Ohio by saying these Obama-hating Republicans, they put through all this crazy legislation. Let's vote them out. So, you know, they will use the playbook essentially Republicans are using this year. Last question. When you look at the specific elections that are going on, which are the ones that really matter? I see three that really matter. Scott Walker. Does Scott Walker win his governorship that kind of determines whether he's a viable presidential candidate. How big does John, John Kasich is up, right? Yeah. Does John, how big is John Kasich's victory in Ohio for governor? Because he, I think he's perceived to be a strong possible presidential candidate. And then does Charlie Crist win in Florida? Because that is a perhaps signal of how good democratic chances might be in Florida in 2016, how strong the presidential campaign would be. But John, John was with me until that last one. Now he's just yeah. like, forget it. Are there other races that well, you think? So you're not with these on the governor, on the governor's front. Well, no, even Senate races that you think, oh, this is a really important race. What about Kentucky? But he's Mitch gonna McConnell, win. whether gonna he win. gets to come back or not. Yeah. yeah I, gonna win. Uh, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fun race. It's an, it's an interesting race. I, you know, we did the, sh- I think I did the show. Did I do the show from Wisconsin? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah, I did. So, cause I love the, the Walker race and Wisconsin as a state and the rest of it. I think you're right to point to Wisconsin because it's not just about 
Scott Walker. It's about the power and strength of unions to mount an electoral push against somebody who uh, th- who's their enemy number one. It's also a referendum on a certain theory, which was there was a hypothesis around the the Walker governorship, which was that if you promote conservative ideas, enact them, and then are proud in the face of opposition, that you will get a bunch of independents and moderates, and you will be able to succeed and pull over a bunch of voters who Walker calls them the Obama-Walker voters. That's not happening. It's basically a fight between Democrats and Republicans. He's not pulling over a lot of swing voters. There aren't many left in in Wisconsin. And so the outcome of the governor's race will, will, because a lot of national Republicans have been looking to Walker to say, this is the model for how we should run for president. So that's why that race is really interesting. Kasich is interesting kind of for the opposite way. There are two sets of Republican governors. There are those Republican governors. Walker would be one of them. The governor of Pennsylvania would be another where you have they own both the executive and the legislature and are in trouble, whereas Kasich has the executive and the legislature in Ohio and he's cruising. Some people would argue the reason he's cruising is because he accepted Medicaid money as a part of Affordable Care Act and did other things that were sort of more in tune with traditional blue state politics or purple state politics, I should say. And that's why he's cruising. I mean, his nobody thinks he's in danger. They That was not the case like a year and a half ago. So those are great to look at. I think the, the Rick Scott one is interesting for all the interesting dynamics of the internal race, $100 million will be spent. Christ was a, he was a Republican, then he's a Democrat, then he's a... And Rick Scott was once the least popular governor in the entire country. He's now five points ahead of Chris. So if he survives, it's really interesting. But I think you'd have to put some Senate races between Walker and Kasich and the, and the Florida governor's race. Okay. Let's talk about our other sponsor this week. It's the Great Courses. John Dickerson, a Great Courses satisfied customer. The desire to learn doesn't stop after college. As John Dickerson is always learning. That's the motivation behind the Great Courses, which is engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts. Like the course Customs of the World, Using Cultural Intelligence to Adapt Wherever You Are. It's a fascinating course about the cultural range of cultural dynamics around the world and gives you valuable tools to help you interact and behave personally and professionally in cultural settings and avoid costly misunderstandings. The Great Courses offers over 500 topics, including history, science, photography, and more. And you can watch and listen at your convenience from anywhere with online downloads and streaming with the Great Courses apps or with DVDs and CDs. And there is no pressure of exams. Right, John? Would you pass you know, your exams on your Great Courses courses? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I read, I listened to the Great Courses all the while I was driving through um, through Wisconsin. I can only do this by myself because when I try and do it with the family in the car, they all shout me down. Um, It's incredibly indelible for periods, but then the other, when you're lost and you're trying, then you forget. So suddenly you're like, wait, I thought I was listening to you. I I would pass the part about like Dante's Inferno, and then I would totally fall apart on on Columbus. Good thing there's no exams. Good thing there's no exams. The Great Courses has a special offer for Political GabFest listeners. If you order Customs of the World, you can get 80% off the original price. The 80% savings is available only for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash GabFest. That's thegreatcourses.com slash GabFest. In a world where it's practically impossible not to see a naked picture of someone when you go online, you would think there wouldn't be much drama about the leak of a bunch of naked celebrity pictures. But the, Oh, I so disagree with this premise. The sudden appearance. Give me, let me just slap my lead, Emily. The sudden <laughs> no, appearance. it's terrible already. Of a, the second part. Of a cache of pictures of, of uh, various celebrity women naked has prompted... An enormous uproar. The, the pictures appeared on extremely seedy corners of the web, and they appear to have been heisted. It's not exactly clear yet how they were heisted, but possibly by hackers who somehow swept through Apple, either by targeting individual iPhones or perhaps the cloud storage itself. The reactions to these pictures has been furious. There's demand for criminal prosecution of thieves, of new laws preventing websites from hosting such content, new laws that would make it easier to pull down such content, uh, new new exhortations of Google to not allow people to see such content or direct people to such content. So, Emily, you wrote a piece, um, really good piece, about why is it illegal to post a copyrighted video but not illegal to post a stolen nudie pic. So give us a bit of the legal landscape. You have naked pictures of celebrities as, As a thief, has a thief broken the law to get them? Is posting them online illegal? Is hosting them illegal? Is linking to them illegal? Is there a copyright issue? Are there Google obligations not to link to them? And there's also a child porn angle to this too, right? With with, yes. with one at least one set of pictures, yeah. right? 
Oh, this is so meaty. You've given me so many entry points. So first of all, let's divide this world into criminal and civil because I feel like they keep getting mixed up. If someone hacked into Jennifer Lawrence and other celebrities' phones, that hacker stole data and could be prosecuted. There are a bunch of states that um, allow for such prosecution. There's a federal law that could be invoked. It's a federal law we often, or I often, don't like all that much, the big, broad one that got Aaron Schwartz prosecuted. But, you know, in a situation like this, you could imagine the unit at the Department of Justice feeling pretty righteous if they can find these hackers and criminally prosecuting them. That's those individual hackers, assuming they can be found, the people who actually did the stealing and then originally perhaps put them online themselves or maybe sold them to someone else. But they're only the kind of beginning of all of this story, right? Because then there are websites that were either hosting the pictures themselves, like 4chan or Imgur, which surely I am saying that wrong. Or there is a subreddit that started that was basically created around circulating links to all these photos. So what about those websites? And to me, this is where the major change in the law that I would like to see happen is relevant. And the piece I wrote was pointing out that we have really clear copyright protections in this country. So if you are a TV producer and you see your video on YouTube or wherever and someone has pirated it and it's up there and it's unauthorized, you send a note to YouTube and YouTube takes it down. It's called the notice and takedown regime. No one screams and yells about free speech or breaking the internet. They just take it down. Whereas we have the opposite regime for content that is an invasion of privacy or defamation in which we, even if a site like 4chan is knowingly hosting photos that are clearly meet the legal test for an invasion of privacy, which these do, clearly were obtained without consent, which is true, and were obtained illegally, which may also be true, even knowing all of that, 4chan has no clear legal responsibility to take those photos down. And so the economic incentives for circulating the links or hosting the photos are all in favor of leaving everything up as opposed to taking things down. And that seems just bananas to me. I mean, there's lots of kind of gray area we can talk about where we'd be concerned about censorship and ripping a lot of speech down off the Internet. But nude photos that are involuntary porn published without consent, I just don't see why we can't have a straight up rule about that. Well, I am shocked and surprised to hear you as a journalist defending the copyright regimen, which allows allows copyright holders to stop practically any use of copyrighted material, even use that is basically legitimate satirical commentary and that by just sending a little note to YouTube. So I, so I think that the idea that, that we would hold that standard up as, but the, that's not as true. a great admirable standard. We have fair use standard. provisions for copyright. Yeah, but you know what? Have you ever have you ever stood in front of the bus, which is which is someone writing a letter <laughs> to writing a letter to you about fair use, writing a letter to I you about, about a copyright exclusion, and YouTube will pull it down like that, like that, like that, like that. Stuff. Yeah, for those of you who couldn't instantly. pick that up, he is snapping his fingers. Uh, <laughs> so, so I don't. As a, as a journalist, I'm totally creeped out at the notion that there would be the same protection for anything anyone says is defamatory. Oh, it's got to come down. No, anything I anyone didn't says say is, that. You no, did say no, defam- you, you said defamatory. You said defamatory. You said defamatory. You said defamatory. No, but let's wait, just, aren't we you? are not talking about defamatory You're speech. Just we can have a different argument pets. about that, but that's not what we're talking about today. We are talking about involuntary pornography, sexual nude images of people who do not want those photos on the internet. Right. And so what's your so view on that? So do you disagree that? with me about that? I think it, you could possibly define a class that is pretty narrow. Although, again, there are people who sign consents. There are people who have done pornography, at, at, you know, at, at when they were yeah, younger. Yeah, I'm not and, talking about them. Well, but the presumption is going to be this stuff comes down. If anyone makes a complaint, this stuff comes down. I'm alarmed at making law based on wrongs done to celebrities. I don't like that at all. I think celebrities like are people who who use their image to a great extent. They control it. They exploit how they use their image, and to 
kowtow and to, to roll over instantly when one celebrity says, oh, I've been wrong. There's some pictures of me that are out there that I don't want. This is why when George Clooney and other people were pushing for laws about controlling paparazzi, I was creeped out. I don't like making law based on celebrities. If you talk about people who are everyday citizens, those examples I find very powerful. But, but and there Jay are Lawrence, lots of those Jan- examples. Jennifer Lawrence, I don't find powerful. Yeah. Okay. So in this case, what happened to Jennifer Lawrence happens to ordinary people all the time. You can find lots of stories of regular people whose exes often post what's called revenge porn in retaliation or who are the victims of a hack in the same way that Lawrence may have been. It is true that there is something disturbing about how much more attention this whole phenomenon gets when there happens to be a victim who's a celebrity. I mean, when this happened to Scarlett Johansson, that's when states started passing criminal laws with more teeth. But the fact is there is this large kind of festering phenomenon going on that is really causing enormous harm, real harm to real people. And in this case, if you're apt to not like celebrities, in this case, the celebrity is what's doing a good work here, which is that it, it raises this issue to the public conversation that it is. And if there are wise laws put in place to combat it, or at least punish the people who would spread this around or the sites that would make money off of it, then it protects all those random people whose lives are destroyed by having these pictures out there well, because of some indiscretion or because of a consensual relationship in which this just happened to be a part of the exchange of affection. And that some like random little person can have their life destroyed or think their life is being destroyed because they think, as Emily knows better than anyone, the psychological pain that comes from having the notion that everybody's looking at you and laughing at you is devastating. So in that, to the extent that celebrities might fix that condition, then you should be – then that seems like a great use of there, celebrity. There is uh, – the question – interesting question to me is, is this a job for Google or is this a job for the law? Because – it does seem like Google could solve this as they have solved, largely solved the mugshots question. Yes, Google could solve this and Google, it's chosen not to. Google could say, we're just not going to link to, we're going to make it very, 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 very hard for people to find naked pictures of random, random people, naked pictures of anyone generally. We're going to, you're going to have to go to a lot of effort. We're not going to, the search results are going to be hard to get at. They could do that. Would that be a better solution than a law infringing on the First Amendment, which is almost certainly what what Emily is about to propose. So the law – well, okay, I am all for Google taking this on and frankly don't understand why they haven't except that I think with a company like Google, until they are really pushed into it, they are less likely to act. And I haven't quite thought through how you would need to change the law to put more pressure on Google, though I'm sure some smarter person has. But let me just explain – The First Amendment is not actually directly implicated in this conversation. The courts have already found that nude sexual photos that someone has not consented to when people are trying to get pornography of themselves back – The courts have already said, you know what, there is such a tiny, if any, shred of public interest in this information. We don't see a First Amendment interest here. The law that's at issue here is a regular old statute passed in 1996, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it's not even the text of the law that is so problematic in my mind. It's the way the lower courts have interpreted it. The Supreme Court has never directly weighed in. So Congress could change this law to shift the incentives for ISPs and websites in the way I was talking about, or the courts could reinterpret it. And the cases on which this kind of free pass for the sites and the ISPs come from, they are old cases. They're from the 90s, from a moment where it seemed like the Internet was vulnerable and we had to worry and make sure that it wouldn't be strangled by censorship. I just don't think we live in that universe anymore. We have an incredibly vibrant, strong Internet, which, by the way, is doing harm in ways that are just not necessary for free speech and free Internet I blanch at the idea – your point about the First Amendment is well taken – but I blanch at the idea – that ISPs and websites are going to be held responsible for third-party postings. Even in the case of pornography, revenge porn or porn to which someone no one's given consent, where it clearly shouldn't be up there, where it's disgusting that someone has done it, I feel like it would be very hard to draft a law which basically only implicates 
this category of of why it's knowingly knowingly continuing to host it's not you have to keep an eye out for it and self-police it's if jennifer lawrence or an ordinary person comes knocking at your door and says please please that's when you're responsible why is that so no no, it's it's that it's not that part that i find so hard it's the part which is going to narrowly define the category of information that can be pulled down to be simply this category of of nudie pics. Nude or sexual photos that the person in them did not consent to. That's like well, uh, not – I mean be, I know we always say like pornography – obscenity is what people – you know, that famous quote from John from Potter Stewart that it is what I say it is. It is what I think it is. But that's not true about about nude or sexual photos. We, we know what those are and you could, you know, have, you could define it in a way that you're essentially talking about the category of obscenity, which is a legal category. I understand the need for a legal resort here, Emily, and you have a stronger case than you usually do in this. But, but <laughs> Woo, in the long run, that. but in the long run, I really think we have to continue to have a conversation about the change in mores because bad data, bad information, malicious information, nasty photos, the bad things that you've done are going to be recorded in the world. They're going to be out there, and sometimes they're going to be out there and unprotectable and are going to circulate. And we have to, as a society, also focus on this idea of forgiving people or not just not being bothered by the fact. Like to if I knew that there were naked John Dickerson took naked pictures and they someone stole them and they were like naked pictures of John Dickerson floating around the internet, would that materially change my opinion of John Dickerson? I really don't I want to say that it would not. I don't think it would. I just Well that is very Enlightened and yeah. I have to say perhaps very male of you, but I don't think you can tell people who are victims of involuntary pornography. Oh, you know what? Just get over it because I don't feel like even trying to make any kind of legal change to help you out. This is on you. You just have to deal. I'm not saying not. I, I think making some kind of legal change is OK, but. The legal shift is not as important as the shift in societal mores. There are all kinds of information that used to be considered despicable that you wouldn't want shared about somebody, which are now known to everybody. It's easily findable. And I think this is another category of, of, of such information. You know, I mean, I agree with you that this should essentially all become less humiliating, embarrassing, and less titillating. I just have a lot less faith in human nature that we are getting to that Edenic place anytime soon. And in the meantime, there is a lot of victimization going on. And also, by the way, we've been getting there, at least as far as celebrities are concerned, which is, you know, ever since Marilyn Monroe's career wasn't ruined by nude photos. So in a sense, they have been changing, but not for the people who are damaged in the way Emily has has, uh, written about and and knows about, which is the regular people. And the mores are never going to change enough for them because it's a different kind of injury. Right. I mean, topless photos of Jennifer Lawrence, like somewhere in my heart, I can see the argument for like, who really cares? She's so beautiful. Whatever. If she doesn't see it that way, then that matters to me. But what I feel really strongly is that if you are someone whose boyfriend has posted, you know, flagrantly racy, like whatever pictures of you that you took with him privately, and now every prospective employer or client or whoever who types your name into the internet sees this come up along with some like horrible slut shaming, you know, posts this ex of yours has written, that is like a real harm that causes economic and psychological devastation to people. And we don't have a clear remedy for it most of the time. Okay. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are desperately attempting to stop those naked John Dickerson nudie pics from being circulated on the internet, John, but you have time for other things, what what would you like to chatter about? Well, actually, this is a photo, a digital photo related chatter. So the segue could is uh, the platonic ideal of the segue. Um, I would like to uh, encourage everyone who uses Instagram in their life um, to follow the feed of Eric Talmadge. He's the Pyongyang bureau chief for the Associated Press who takes pictures of life around North Korea. So Instagram is wonderful because for me it represents what sort of Twitter used to be like and this it's just a much less – Twitter's kind of turned into this kind of bog of bile. And on Instagram you can be just kind of on the subway and you – Take a look at a picture from North Korea and it is just – it's so – first of all, it sort of hits you different parts in your day. But these pictures are – like it looks like it could be downtown Des Moines and then in others, 
it is so otherworldly and it just immediately transports you out of whatever you're doing at that moment. Um, And one of my favorites from this week was a a little video clip he took on the subway where the behavior was – it was hysterical. The the North Korean regime is going to have to do some work on um, the exit and entrance into subways because – there was no letting the people get off the train. Like the North Koreans just like barged on the train and these poor people were trying to get off. And it felt very much like, you know, you're being in New York City, except for the subway looked like it was from like 1950. And they're all and then there were these pictures from an amusement park, which looked not that different than the Wisconsin State Fair. Anyway, it's just a great it's a great thing to to follow. And he takes wonderful pictures. Emily, what's your chatter? I have been following the U.S. Don't say Open. anything about a nudie pic or anything like that. Don't damage I didn't even reputation. ask you if you went to look at the photos in reporting out this uh, segment. You know, I, I made like two – I went to two links worth and then it was just – and I ended up on 4chan and you just feel so dirty when you're on 4chan for even like six seconds. So I didn't see any pictures, no. All right. Well, I'm glad that was a cleansing moment for you. OK. So I've been following in later moments the U.S. Open with great glee in the last couple of weeks and I – in my kind of tennis frenzy, read a piece by David Foster Wallace called The String Theory that was published in Esquire in 1996 and is about a player named Michael Joyce and his efforts to qualify for the Canadian Open. He's ranked, I think, 79th when Wallace is following him around. This is an old piece. I don't know why. I have never read it before. It's sort of embarrassing. But if you, like me, are a tennis fan and have missed this piece, it's so great and super interesting and has these like deep truths about this crazy game that some of us play. Wallace has written about tennis other times, too. He has a good Roger Federer piece, and there's one about his growing up that's called something like Tennis, Tornadoes, and Trigonometry that I think is from Harper's. But I really thought this Michael Joyce piece was just a joy. All right. My chatter is I went to the National Portrait Gallery this weekend. There were a couple of Civil War-related exhibitions, including one about Grant and Lee, in their parallel lives in 1864. And it had a, a photo of Grant and his – anyone who listens to GAFAS knows I'm a huge Ulysses Grant fan. It had a photo of Grant and his top advisors and and his kind of council of war. And it turned out there was a guy who looked different than everybody else in it. And the caption explained it was a guy named Eli Parker, E-L-Y. I think it's pronounced Eli. I don't really know. Who was a Seneca Indian who became one of Grant's – top advisors. He was an engineer in the army. He was also kind of a quasi-anthropologist. He helped track Indian ways uh, and helped other people study Indian ways. He had been turned down for the army for being Indian, but he knew Grant. They'd had, I forget why, they'd known each other in Illinois and Grant knew he was a smart, good guy. And so Grant brought him into the army and he became Grant's, one of Grant's uh, right-hand men. And he, in fact, he is the person who wrote out by hand the surrender terms for the Confederates at Appomattox, so it's in it's the the surrender of the Confederates is is in Parker's handwriting, and there's a a funny anecdote about Grant at and Lee are at Appomattox in the house where they're signing it, and there are all these generals around, and Grant looks at Parker and says, "Well, at least it's good to see a real American here," and Parker responds, "We're all Americans." Anyway, it's just like a funny – he ended up being the first Indian to be a commissioner of Indian affairs. He helped with Grant's relatively peaceful policy towards the Indians of the West. And it's a great, strange, uh, wonderful life. So I, I recommend this little exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery if you're in D.C. on Grant and Lee. Let's do the credits. So Mike Volo – I was listening to Mike Volo's podcast, Lexicon Valley, this week. And Ben Zimmer posed you a word challenge. And you had to anagram the word appealing – and in like one second, Volo anagrammed it to Lanyap. It was amazing. Wow. It was amazing how quickly he did it. So I, I thought I would honor our producer, Mike Volo. We're going to anagram him, which is you. if you Mike Volo, you, there are basically no anagrams. Vi lookum is the best anagram. But, then, but if you do Michael Volo, which is your given name, you get what a woman might say to the egg she's about to freeze, which is, hello, ice ovum. Mike Volo, off mic, just said there's a great one for his full name, Michael Francis Volo, which is Frivolous Maniac Lech, which wow. no one no one would ever describe you. Not any one of those words. Our intern, Max Tawney, is how you might describe a big bug, a Max Knit. <laughs> Andy Bowers, our executive producer, his Mexican girlfriend used to say of him, he, he was a body senor. 
Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Lots of links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Check our Twitter feed at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. You can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon, who back in the day used to stay to her stoner British friends, Blaze one, Limey. <laughs> and John, yep, that's and, the best one. And John Dickerson, who back in his sporty days went big game hunting, resulting in this headline, Jock Ends Rhino. I'm David Plotz. <laughs> or as my kids say about me, Dad Zipvolt. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.